Good morning, church, and happy Easter. He is risen. Yes, he is risen indeed. Well, I want to let you know that Easter has not been canceled. We're still the church, and because of the marvel of technology, we're still able to gather in a virtual setting. Um, and so this is a time for us, as I've been saying over recent weeks, to learn different ways of being the church. But we're reminded here on this Easter Sunday that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is a living Lord. He is alive. And because he's alive, it means that his church is alive and well. Um, when Jesus' disciples uh, witnessed his crucifixion on the cross, they did exactly what Jesus predicted they would do. They all fled, and they deserted him. And they had hidden themselves away uh, in the upper room, and they were fearful for their lives and for their future. All their, their hopes uh, had been dashed. And so that first Easter Sunday, when Jesus appeared to them, they were as surprised as anybody was, even though he had told them in advance that these things would happen, that he would die and be betrayed and rejected and then rise again from the dead on the third day. The Bible tells us that he appeared to them through many convincing proofs. He showed them himself alive to them and convinced them that he was alive, and it transformed them. And, of course, they began to spread the message of his resurrection to the world at that time, and everything has changed since then. And so now we find ourselves during this time when, uh, when we're suffering through the pandemic, uh, all the economic uncertainty that's resulted. Uh, people, uh, many people are living uh, in fear and anxiety, including some Christians wondering, you know, when is this all going to come to an end? Uh, will anything ever be the same again? And so this has been um, a difficult time for everybody, including me. All of us are finding a different way of going forward, um, a different way of um, being family, uh, a different way of being the church. But I want to encourage you this morning, and Pastor Blaine is going to bring us a message this morning, a very encouraging message about the grace of God because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And I just want us to prepare ourselves to listen to what the Lord has to say uh, through his servant this morning. Everything in this world right now seems very dark and gloomy. Um, and it feels maybe a little bit like what it was on that first Easter weekend when Jesus was crucified. The disciples did not know what was going to happen next. There was uncertainty just like there is for us right now. But the good news is, and what they learned on that first Easter Sunday is he is risen indeed. He is alive. He is here with us today, right here and right now. And he is watching over his people and all those who have faith in him. So just as Jesus rose up from the grave, this is a time for his church to rise up from the ashes of hopelessness and despair that is surrounding people today. Um, and through our words and our deeds, we need to declare to the world that the church is 
here to stay. And we are here to serve a risen Savior and a living Lord. And we're here to bring transformation to everyone and everything around us. And so because of Easter, death and decay are defeated. They don't get the last word. Because of Easter, we know that our hope does not lie in what this world offers us. The Apostle Paul says at the end of his letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, he said, command those who are rich in this present world not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Haven't we been reminded that wealth is uncertain? Um, everything is uncertain right now. And so what Paul is saying here is that our hope is not in this world and what it offers us. But what is certain is that his kingdom is here and his kingdom is coming. Jesus is alive and he's coming again to bring heaven to earth and to take us to be with him in our eternal home. And so Easter reminds us that what binds us together as Christians is not just a set of doctrines. What binds us together as Christians is not just a creed. What unites us is the belief that Jesus not only died, but he rose again from the dead, never to die again. And he is here with us today. God is still on the throne and he is in control, even though we are not. And so on this very unusual Easter weekend, we still worship and serve a Savior who lives, the one who promised that he will come again, and everything will be made new. That is our hope. And now I want to invite you to pray with me. Father, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus into a world that is broken and lost and without hope. That hope is found only in you. And Easter reminds us that no matter what is going on around us, no matter how hopeless things look, no matter how uncertain, no matter how fearful we may be, that we can put our hope in God. That because Jesus rose from the dead, death and decay do not get the last word. And I pray today, Father, that you would grant us the faith and the grace to put all of our hopes in Jesus and in his coming kingdom. Because we know, Lord, that what this world offers us is uncertain and it's temporal. It won't last. And during these days when we're suffering through this pandemic and all this economic uncertainty, when people have lost jobs and income, and we're not sure if anything is going to be back to to normal. We need to be reminded that you are still on the throne. I pray, Lord, that you would help those of us who are suffering, uh, who are 
fearful, anxious, who are feeling particularly isolated and lonely during this time, I pray, Lord, that you would bring them comfort and that that comfort would come through their understanding and their knowledge that Jesus is alive and that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And so, Father, we thank you again today for this time that we can gather in this virtual setting. I pray for Pastor Blaine. May you anoint him, Father. May you speak through your servant and encourage us on this Easter weekend. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning, church. I really miss our times together uh, because God uses you as a catalyst blessing in my life. And I trust everything is going well for you at this time. Um, thank you, Pastor Brian, for your prayer. And Steve, for the wonderful worship that you have arranged for us this morning. Last week, Alyssa, our youth pastor, uh, spoke about Peter's denial and how he, his fear, he let his fear instead of his faith govern his reaction. And this week I will be continuing on in our series, The Road to Glory. And we will be looking at Mark 16. Much of the scripture that I use will appear on the screen, but if you have a Bible, you can follow along. I will reference each passage that I quote. I've entitled my message this morning, Resurrection, a New Era. Easter this year comes in the midst of a global crisis. As Christians around the world recall the death and resurrection of Jesus, it, it seems fitting to remember that it was a death that resulted in fear, mourning, darkness, and uncertainty. Kind of sounds like what we're facing today at this Easter. For all who knew and loved Jesus, this was their reality. The life they imagined with him suddenly ended in an abrupt and deafening silence. But today we're looking at the resurrection. Jesus Christ, God's Son, was crucified, buried, and in three days later, the empty tomb. And this marked the beginning of a new era, the age of grace, the resurrection. That is why today when people gather together or when we meet, we say, He is risen. He's risen indeed. Father, I pray that you would uh, just speak to our hearts as we open the word today. I pray, Lord, that you will take these words and interpret them, customize them for each hearer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Since I've been, we've been isolated uh, in the isolation mode, we, 
we have been uh, had puzzles on the go. And uh, for those of you who check out my Facebook page, uh, you'd see the, a couple that we've completed. For some, you know, Christianity is very puzzling. And the reason that it is puzzling, because they don't have maybe the picture to follow. The picture, if we were to put a puzzle together without the picture, it would be an impossible task. And that's why when we do a puzzle, we always have the picture before us and, and we know what color should go where. It helps us to put it all together. You know, um, have you ever bought a, a puzzle at a garage sale and you go home and you put it all together and two of the puzzles are missing? That happens a lot. I remember one time when my boys were younger, um, we had friends come in and uh, they had a, a daughter and they were in the family room playing and after the friends left, I went into the family room and they had taken all our puzzles and dumped them in a big pile. And I looked at that and I thought, oh, there's no gentle way we can redeem this pile. And some people look at Christianity from, and they find it very puzzling. They, they, they see, have a sense that, uh, you know, uh, there's a bunch of rules and there are different interpretations and what are they to believe. Well, the different interpretations that uh, they hear and see and act it. But you know, we look at, at um, the Apostle Paul, uh, who was, by the way, a persecutor of the church, the followers of Jesus Christ. And on his way to Damascus, Jesus encountered, or Jesus encountered Paul, or Paul encountered Jesus, and he experienced Jesus firsthand. And he became a follower. And he started churches all around the, the Mediterranean. And, and in one of those churches in Corinth, he writes this to them. And I'm reading from the NIV version, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. And then we'll look at verses 14 through 19. For what I received, I passed on to you as of the first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And then down in verse 17, he said, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. For this truth, the Apostle Paul endured great suffering and ended up being a martyr for the faith. See, the resurrection offers you a clear path forward regardless of your hang-ups in the past, because we're in this new age of grace. The foundation of Christianity is not 
I repeat, not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about what you know about other Christians. It's not getting all your prayers answered the way you think they should be answered or all your questions answered. Everything about Christianity stands or crumbles on the truth of what we celebrate today. The foundation of Christianity stands or crumbles on the resurrection. I want us to look at two questions. One, did it really happen? And two, if so, what is holding you back? Do you realize that in all the historical documents we have of ancient history, we have more details around these few hours of Jesus' death than any other ancient story? Did you know that? And it's not just biblical accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are non-biblical accounts as well. There was a Roman historian named Tacitus, a Roman senator and historian who lived around the time, and, and he wrote about it. And then there was the famous Jewish historian, Josephus. He wrote about it. And today what I would like for us to do, I would like for us to look at the gospel accounts and ask the question, can we trust them? Did the resurrection really happen? And I want to ponder three things. First of all, we have what the apologists call the embarrassing transparency of the gospel writers. Isn't that a fascinating phrase? The embarrassing transparency of the gospel writers. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything about Christianity is a lie. Christianity is based on the resurrection of Jesus. And if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, there would be a major weight on the shoulders of the disciples to carry on a lie. And to do that, they're going to have to prop themselves up and, and make themselves heroic to make enough chips to carry it on. My mother used to say to us, you know, a liar has to have a good memory, and it usually takes a dozen lies to cover one lie. And there's truth in that. And, you know, we have a modern-day example of how uh, one government had to prompt up a lie for their leader. And if you, you can Google this. It's a fascinating read, and I'm just going to take a few points from it, but the incredible Kim Jong-il, the father of the leader of North Korea today, they said about him that he was born under a double rainbow, that he could talk at three weeks, that he could walk at eight weeks, that he wrote 1,500 books while he was in college, 
And the first time that he ever picked up a golf club in 1994, he hit 11 holes in one and a score of minus 38. Then he never played again. This is what you have to do to propagate a lie. What, however, is amazing to me is this. The New Testament account of the disciples is the exact opposite of what we find about them. We find about them that they are cowards. They were doubting. They were confused. They were afraid. They were cowards. Jesus had clearly over and over again stated that he would be arrested. That he was going to die. But that he would rise again on the third day. Look at how clear Jesus was. If you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, Jesus predicts his death. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then he predicts his death a second time in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. And this is what he said. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. And then in the last week of his life, he came to Jerusalem and standing on the Mount of Olives, looking down at the city, Jesus predicted his death a third time. And he said this. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way. He took the twelve aside and he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, if this was a lie, the disciples would have written maybe this story a bit different. They might have said, you know, they came to get him and we just locked our arms and bound ourselves together and said, you're not taking him. But we were overpowered by the Roman soldiers. There were more of them than us. And when they took Jesus away, they could have said, we showed it back at them. He's coming back in three days. The historical fact is this. He was crucified. In one of the most public, humiliating ways, Romans were experts in crucifixion. They did thousands of executions. And 
you know, it was the Passover time and many people were in Jerusalem and, and Pilate knew there'd be a lot of people there to watch this crucifixion. And so he made a sign that said, King of the Jews in three languages. They witnessed it. And then at the end, the Roman soldier takes a spear and he drives it through the ribcage of Jesus into his heart and blood and water flowed from it to make sure that he was dead. If it's a lie, how are you going to write about the only person in history coming back from the grave? Well, they could have written it this way. Jesus' followers knew that his death had not defeated him. And while everyone else thought that he was dead, they gathered with torches outside of his grave on that Sunday morning. And as the sun peeked over the Mount of Olives, they stood there and they began to count down. Ten, nine, eight, seven, two, one. And gave a great shout as the grave rumbled and the guards fled. And there stood Jesus. Sort of like a, an escape artist in a magic show. That's how you'd write the story if you're going to perpetrate the lie. But in the gospel account, we find it the exact opposite. Not one single disciple showed up at the tomb on Sunday morning do you know why? Because not one single follower of Jesus believed that he would rise. Even though Jesus was crystal clear to them that he would rise again. <clears throat> Even though Jesus was crystal clear to them that he would rise again. But before we judge them too hard, harshly, if someone said to you, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again in three days, would you believe it? Not one other person had ever died and rose again in history, not one. Buddha died in 483 BC, and you can visit his grave in India. Muhammad died in 632 AD, and you can visit his grave in Medina. Mohammed died in 632 AD, and you can visit his grave in Medina. L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of the uh, Church of Scientology, he died in 1986. They spread his ashes in the Pacific Ocean. No one ever claimed that they were going to rise from the dead except Jesus. The disciples didn't believe that even though he told them that he would be back from the grave. What was it that they believed about this guy? Not unlike many people today. They believed he was a good teacher. That he taught some good things. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat. Be faithful. And children, obey your parents, which is a good word for us, particularly at this time. 
with the schools being closed. They believe what he taught was true. But not one single person believed that he would rise again, even though he told them so clearly. Do you realize how embarrassing and idiotic that made the disciples look? Why do they portray themselves as doubting, confused, afraid cowards? Because they were doubting, confused, afraid cowards. They are relaying the story just as it happened. And this should give you and give me a reason to have confidence in the account. They were not trying to make things up. And so we have what the apologists call the embarrassing transparency of the gospel writers. And the second thing, he appeared to women. Women were the first eyewitnesses of his resurrection. Every gospel writer records that the first people that Jesus appeared to was a group of women. They were on their way to the tomb. In Mark chapter 16, we read, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. They were on their way to the tomb, not because they expected to see Jesus risen. They had come to anoint his body as a final act of devotion. The fact that they intended to do so suggests that they had given up hopes and that his claims would come true. They expected to find a dead man, one they would weep over and mourn for, but their senses were affronted with an unfathomable sight. Now, we know that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had already taken the body and they prepared and wrapped and anointed his body and they placed it in the tomb. Why do you think they had to come and anoint it again? Well, maybe, may, just maybe, they thought, you know, men did this and in all probability they didn't do it right. Um, I was speaking with a friend last week, and he said his wife was like the white tornado in this isolation, uh, and she's painting the house. And then he called a while later, and I said, what are you doing today? He said, I'm helping paint, but I know I'm not doing it right. That problem has um, perpetuated for centuries. When they show up, oh, Jesus appears as their risen Savior. And you know, the first person he speak to was Mary Magdalene. He said, in Matthew 16 and 9, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. 
this was a problem. And the reason I say that was because she had been a demon-possessed woman and many theologians believed that she was a prostitute, had been a prostitute, and had lived a crazy life. But she experienced Jesus. And if you ever have something in your past that causes you shame and hold back because you don't think you're worthy enough, Remember this, the first person that Jesus spoke to with was Mary Magdalene, a woman who would make anything in your past look very small. A wonderful, wonderful expression of God's redeeming grace. Why would Jesus meeting with a group of women give us great confidence in the account? Well, in the first century, a woman's testimony was absolutely worthless. It was not admissible in court at any time. So if you were perpetrating a lie, you would never say the first person that had seen the only person who had ever risen from the dead, that he appeared to a woman whose testimony was absolutely worthless. You know, we know that uh, the gospel was written about 20 years after this, uh, and um, they could have scratched that out. Why did they leave that in? Because that's exactly what happened. That should give us confidence. They didn't have to make up a lie. The women, they ran to tell the disciples who were locked in a room, isolated, fearful for their life, to tell them. And you would think that it would be a time when the bell went off and said, oh, yes, he did tell us. He told us many times that this would happen. But no, that's not what happened. If you read Luke Chapter 24 and verse 7 says this, But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. And days later, these cowards hiding for their life in a bold fashion hit the streets of Jerusalem where these very people witnessed Jesus die. They risked their lives by proclaiming a message that changed the entire world within 300 years. The whole empire of Rome turned to Christianity. How does that happen? That is impossible unless the disciples saw with their own eyes the risen Savior. And the greatest evidence of the resurrection is the transformation of the disciples after the resurrection. From unbelieving cowards to bold proclaimers. And the biggest change was Jesus' brother James. Throughout the Gospels, we are told that he, he really wasn't a believer, not a follower of Jesus, and, and was even antagonistic to his brother but after the resurrection, he became a leader in the church of Jerusalem. He became the boldest of all the disciples. 
And he was later stoned to death because of the message. What would it take for you to be convinced that your brother was the son of God? No miracle, no magic could convince you unless you saw your brother die. And then you saw him rise from the dead three days later. The evidence of the resurrection is incredibly strong. Every disciple died a martyr. Not one recanted. Would you do that for a lie? I don't think so. What is the message they died for? It's simple. Jesus died for you. We repent We baptize. He will forgive any sin you have committed. He rose to conquer death. If you have never accepted his gift and prayed for forgiveness, what is holding you back from believing the truth and following Jesus? You might not have seen him with your own eyes, but you don't. But don't you see others following Jesus whose lives have been transformed? You have no idea how some people can live with such joy and peace and love in their lives when you look at what they've gone through. The only evidence is that Jesus transformed them. One of the reasons people back off as they don't feel like they're good enough yet. God is not waiting for you to get your life in order for you to follow him. It's the exact opposite. Christ wants to help you to get your life straight. If you hold back from the power of God's son, it's like saying to the doctor, I'll get that prescription filled after I feel better. Christianity, it is what God has already done for you. It's not what you can do for God. That's what the, the resurrection is all about. I had the privilege last week to conduct the committal of a beautiful lady who spent her life living for God. And this resurrection truth is never more meaningful than when you're standing at the graveside of a loved one. John 14, verses 26 and 27 says this, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Also says in the, in the scripture, in the Bible, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To remove from us as far as the east is from the west, never to remember it against us anymore. A clean slate. Because you see, the wages of sin is death, 
but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Will you trust him? Will you trust his promise for your life today? If you have never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can do it. But you're simply asking for forgiveness and asking him to take over your life. And as we read the word of God, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, will translate these pieces of the puzzle so that you can understand his purpose and his will for your life. God bless you. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Amen.